Okay. Uh, Ralph, would you be willing to open us up in prayer? Sure. Bow our heads, uh, or leave your eyes open as you have it may be. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this day that we've set aside to come and spend with you and uh, come to where we know that you will be with us. Bless Paul as he speaks uh, and teaches the gospel of John. Send your Holy Spirit. Only your Holy Spirit can truly enlighten us. Uh, bless our pastor today. Uh, and always pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So we finished chapter one of the Gospel of John last time. And just to kind of get us back into the, the thinking of John, I wanted to spend a little bit of time looking at the different ways that Jesus Christ is described in chapter one. I've summarized these. They didn't make it onto my PowerPoint. But the, the first title that we come to is the Word. And there's a, we, we spent a lot of time on that. There's certainly a lot of meaning to it. But to summarize it, God's self-revelation would probably be a good chunk of what John is getting at with the, the title of the word. Jesus Christ is described as God, God's equal, God's fellow. Um, he's described as life and light. And they, these are going to both be themes as we you look at the Gospel of John. Um, and in fact, when he's described as light, he's described as true light. And I think what uh, John is getting at there is that you know, he illuminates things perfectly, whereas you know, physical light you can kind of see to an extent, but to really understand reality, you need the illumination of Jesus Christ. The only Son from the Father. Uh, so that's the relationship between the, the Son and the Father uh, that, that's kind of being alluded to there. It's going to be developed as we uh, move on in John. Jesus Christ is described as being full of grace and truth. And we saw that you know, that wasn't a contrast to the law. There's grace and truth in the law, but grace and truth kind of see their fullness in Jesus Christ. Uh, the next title actually is Jesus Christ. And you know, we read that, and it, it's easy to kind of think of that as just sort of you know, his, his name. His first name was Jesus, and his last name was Christ, and that's how he'd fill out his papers in elementary school. But um, we, we do have to remember that Christ is not a, a, a name. It's a title. Uh, it's the, the Greek equivalent of Messiah in, in Hebrew. Messiah means anointed one. And so... Uh, you know, Jesus, it's the name, uh, the Hebrew would be Joshua. Um, Christ would be the, the title Messiah. The Lord. Um, so that you certainly, you know, the, the Lord is a title that's used in the Old Testament for God. Um, Lamb of God. We, we saw that there's a number of lambs in the Old Testament that uh, all of them point to aspects of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And the you know, and a really important word there is the. So this isn't a lamb of God like uh, you know, an Old Testament lamb might kind of point to, but this is the final lamb, what all of the, the uh, different lambs throughout the Old Testament, the Passover lamb, you know, uh, the, the ram that was caught in the thicket uh, that Abraham sacrificed, all of the, the different lambs that were sacrificed in various sacrifices, all of those pointed to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Teacher, uh, Messiah, son of Joseph, uh, especially... You know, the, the son of Joseph is kind of pointing to, you know, he, he was very much a human. And, you know, his, uh, <clears throat> you know, with the incarnation, his humanity is stressed equally, in my opinion, at least in, in John, alongside his divinity. Both of those are, are, are stressed in, in equal measure. Uh, king of Israel and then son of man. Uh, and son of man is probably referring back to a, a messianic title that, that's in the uh, prophecy of, of Daniel. So... 
if, if you're kind of reading back through John chapter 1, these are different titles that you'll see for Jesus Christ. This week we're going to start chapter 2, and I wanted to give you just a little bit of background before we, we read uh, you know, the first part of chapter 2. There, there's two major incidents in chapter 2. One is the wedding at Cana, one is the cleansing of the temple. And I'm hoping that we can get through both of those today. We'll, we'll see if, if we make, that, make it that far. Uh, but before we, we read the account of the, the wedding at Cana and the, the water into wine, I just wanted to kind of get us in the mindset of the first century. And maybe I'm doing this for myself a little bit because I am not a fan of weddings. You have to dress up in uncomfortable clothing. It's, the, the food is usually not all that great, although they have to pay a lot for it. Um, I'm an introvert. <laughs> That's probably part of the problem. But to me, it kind of feels like a waste of an afternoon. And I'm secretly, I'm usually not <laughs> that excited if I get invited to a wedding, which probably isn't a great thing. But in the first century, weddings were, were very different. Um, this was a small village. Almost everyone in the village would probably be a subsistence farmer. They depended on their harvests to eat. And if, if they had a bad farming year, they would go somewhat hungry that particular year. Um, they would spend most of their week uh, doing what they could to kind of scrape together a living. Weddings lasted a few days, which does not sound like a, an improvement to me. <laughs> but in, in the first century, this is a few days that you just get to relax, hang out with uh, friends and family, kind of people from around the village who also, instead of having to, to work and not be able to, to hang out, you know, are there, there's plenty of food, there's plenty of drink, um, and weddings were something that people would really look forward to. It's a time of joy. And I want you to kind of have that in mind at, as we read this account of the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The, the first thing I'm just going to kind of call your attention to is, is a, a line that this begins with on the third day. If you go back into chapter 1 and kind of look at the days, this would be kind of the seventh day since the first day there. It's probably not an accident. We certainly saw when we were looking at the prologue that John is alluding to again and again and again the creation account in Genesis. And so having a seven-day framework here certainly means something. Um, my, my guess is there's a little bit of a contrast going on. On the seventh day of creation, God rested from his work. Here, Jesus is celebrating. 
and that's probably pointing to the, the wedding supper of the Lamb at, at, at the end of history. So this is kind of the inauguration of that. And when it's complete, seven would certainly represent completion. Uh, when his work is complete, you know, there will be a celebration, something better. Um, the, the next thing that I, I want to look at is just the fact that Jesus was invited to a wedding. And I think there's a little bit that we can uh, draw from this. There, there's a, uh, a quote. This is actually by someone named H.L. Mencken. This is uh, early 1900s, where he defined puritism as the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Um, hopefully we know better than that. But unfortunately, Christians have this reputation of not being happy. And in fact, wanting to stamp happiness out. We, thankfully, we do not see this in Jesus Christ. It, um, people wanting to be happy at a wedding feast invited Jesus. And I think that tells us a little something about Jesus. Um, people having a good time like to have Jesus around. Um, and I, I think this also tells us that you know, it, there, there's certainly nothing wrong with having potlucks after church and, and enjoying it, having small group uh, meals like our small, small group is going to enjoy this evening, uh, getting together in people's houses and celebrating and uh, enjoying life. Uh, Jesus did that, and that, uh, that tells us that that's, that's a good thing for us to be doing as well. I think that you know, if the... Um, it, it, in fact, you know, having a joy-filled life shows that the joy of our salvation is present, and it kind of uh, shines that light. And the absence of joy probably implies that we don't understand what Christ has accomplished as well as we should. Um, one of the things that we could certainly look at uh, that comes up later in John, this is John uh, 10, the second half of verse 10. Um, I have come that they might, may have life and have it abundantly. Now, ultimately, that's pointing to eternal life, but there's a, a, a present aspect of that as well. You know, Christians enjoy life in a way that an unbeliever doesn't. Um, we could also point to the fact that Jesus is celebrating marriage. Uh, probably not a huge surprise, given how highly marriage is valued in the, the rest of Scripture, uh, but it's certainly here as well. <clears throat> um, the, the next thing I want to kind of address is why it is that running out of wine would be that big a deal. Because today it wouldn't be the same as back then. Um, and in fact, in a lot of venues, you, you, uh, you know, a wedding might kind of be organized so that there's a certain amount of wine, and once that's gone, that, that's probably a good thing so that people don't uh, have too much to drink so that they're not a danger when they drive home. Um, but in the first century, running out of wine actually would have been a a really serious issue. One of the things that I read that kind of surprised me is that the couple hosting the wedding could actually be sued for not providing enough wine. Um, I, I'm not sure <laughs> where that comes from. But you know, multiple commentaries pointed to that. Uh, and in, in the first century, the, the culture is a little bit different. It was a shame-based culture. And this would have been remembered for decades in a small village. Uh, it, it would have kind of put the this uh, newly married couple, you know, uh, at a huge disadvantage socially for probably for decades to come to have kind of failed to provide for their wedding feast. <laughs> uh, and it would be particularly seen as a failure on the part, part of the bridegroom, and we're actually going to uh, come to that later on. Um, wine 
today is kind of considered a luxury. Back then, it was a staple. You, if you didn't have enough wine, you were um, not providing for yourself. Uh, <clears throat> so the next thing I would like to kind of move on to is the first statement that, that Mary makes. They have no wine. Uh, what, what was she asking for? And it's a little bit unclear. Jesus had not performed a miracle at this point, uh, at least uh, according to, to John at the end of this section. And so I, I don't know if she was necessarily expecting Jesus to, to do a miracle. I, I think the flow of thought in here probably points to that, but I'm not sure um, what, on what basis uh, she would have had to expect that. Um, So I, I, I do think, though, that just kind of following the narrative, she seems to be expecting something because she gets a, a mild rebuke from, uh, from Jesus. So the, the response begins with woman. It, it was certainly interesting and noteworthy that no place in John's gospel does Jesus address Mary as mother. He does not hear, he does not elsewhere. Um, doesn't translate well into English. This doesn't sound particularly polite. But I'm told that in Greek, it would be a perfectly polite way of, uh, of speaking, although a little bit awkward uh, to speak to your mother, not using the, the term mother. Um, you know, Ma'am or lady probably comes a little bit closer to the idea uh, than, than woman. So it, the, the, there's nothing impolite like the statement comes across sounding in English. The, the next thing that Jesus said is... Uh, a more literal translation is what to me and to you, which doesn't make a lot of sense because it's an idiom. Um, the only other place that we see this in the Gospels actually is when uh, demons address Jesus and say, what do you have to do with me? <laughs> um, so kind of an uh, interesting idiom. Um, but it, it, it certainly is... And I think the, the ESV kind of gets at what, what Jesus is meaning. It's saying, uh, you know, uh, what do I have to do with this situation? Uh, why, why should I uh, uh, step in? And it, it, this uh, certainly does seem to kind of be at least a mild rebuke. Mary is asking Jesus to perform a miracle, and Jesus uh, is uh, reluctant to do it for different reasons. And so... I want to spend a little bit of time on why Jesus might be reluctant to do this. And to do that, I'm going to jump back to a different gospel, Matthew. We're going to look at the first of the temptations that Jesus faced. This was when he'd been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. He was obviously rather hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I have to say that you know, I've, I've heard this a number of times, and for a long time I never really felt comfortable with, well, why not? You, Jesus is God. Why, why couldn't he turn stones into bread and eat <laughs> if he's hungry? What, what would the problem with that be? And kind of looking over the ministry of Jesus Christ and you know, getting some help from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is kind of where I'm, I'm drawing some of this stuff from, I, I think I've uh, got an answer to that. Let's Before we, we answer it, let's take a look at another passage out of James. Uh, 
we, we can say a lot about this. I, I want to get at one aspect of this, though. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Um, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do, do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And it, it's really this last phrase, to, to spend it on your passions, that I think is what is going on with the temptation as well as with Jesus' reluctance to kind of step in and use his uh, supernatural power just to kind of provide some more wine for a, a wedding to continue. Um, what, what James is saying is that when we pray and uh, we don't, uh, receive what we, we pray for. It's because we're praying with wrong motives. We, we want it for ourselves. We don't want it for the advancement of God's kingdom, for God's glorification, which is the proper uh, motivation to pray for something. And I think that's the same thing that we see in Jesus' temptation. If Jesus had kind of used the power that God had given him to turn those stones into bread, he would have been doing it for his own benefit. He would not have been doing it for the advancement of God's kingdom. He wouldn't have been doing it for God's glory. And consistently, we see Jesus only use uh, miracles for the advancement of God's kingdom and the advancement of God's glory. And that, I think that's why Jesus couldn't, um, or it would have been wrong for Jesus to have responded to the devil's temptation in this passage we looked at in Matthew. I think it would have been equally wrong for Jesus to have kind of stepped in and provided some more wine just to keep a party going. Um, or in response to um, you know, to Mary's request. He does do it. Um, so the, the next statement that I would kind of like to look at is why why did Jesus do a miracle? Um, you know, why, why did he... Uh, provide wine in this situation, although he didn't in the, in the temptation. Um, Mary's second response is one of faith. She decides Jesus is aware of this situation. She kind of puts it into his hands, does not make a specific request of him, but trusts Jesus to respond in an appropriate way. Um, and I, One thing I would like to point out is that you, uh, these two requests from Mary could have been dropped entirely. You, you could have had a very short statement that the wine ran out, Jesus would have stepped in. The rest of the narrative would have flowed the same way. There wouldn't be um, an issue with cutting this. But John has added quite a bit of material, and he's, he is adding it to tell us something. Um, I think one of the things that he's, he's doing is he's uh, telling us you know, an inappropriate way to approach Jesus and an appropriate way uh, to approach Jesus uh, expecting faith, or with expectant faith, but not to approach Jesus as if we, we have the ability to command Jesus to do something. <clears throat> the, the six stone jars are significant. A good rule of thumb, if you're reading anything written by the Apostle John, is to look for symbolism in a number. It doesn't always hold up. Uh, Usually, it almost always holds up in Revelation, and it usually holds up in John, but but not every time. But it, it certainly is a good idea to look, and the, there's going to be some symbolism with six. We're, we're told that these are stone jars that are used for the Jewish rites of purification. Um, 
there's different ideas about what type of uh, purification these would be used for. Most likely is that they'd be used to kind of ceremonially wash hands uh, for cleansing. There's some other possibilities as well. Not too important. Whatever uh, it is, though, it certainly is kind of connected to the ceremonial law. And the fact that there's six of them, you know, John could have just told us that there are some stone jars and told us the total amount of uh, water that they would have held. But six is probably important here. Uh, it's one short of completion. Uh, seven would be completion. And so he's seeing, uh, I think we, we, we kind of have a, a literary picture of you know, the, the law represented by, by six and, and being incomplete. And, and most commentators that I read would, would certainly agree with that. The, the fact that Jesus is turning water into wine would, uh, would make someone that's steeped in the Old Testament kind of think back to the Old Testament. There's a number of passages that we can go to. I'm just going to go to two of them. I'm going to read these. On the mountains of the Lord of hosts, or sorry, all of these sections, by the way, are messianic. They're, they're looking at the messianic age. Um, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, uh, aged wine well refined. There's a longer passage that's also messianic in Amos. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its branches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that are called in my name declares the, the Lord who will do this. So I, I kept this first part specifically because you can kind of see how strongly messianic this particular passage is. So in describing the messianic age, Amos goes on. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who, who sows the seed. Um, the mountain shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes, fortunes of my people and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make grapes, or they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. There's a great deal in this passage. It's a, a very rich passage. But you can see the, how God is going to pour out um, riches and blessings on his people in the Messianic age. And so... Jesus kind of providing an abundance of wine would certainly be you know, a fairly literal fulfillment of that. <laughs> um, more so than I think uh, we, we really should be taking these passages. The, the riches that Jesus is providing are spiritual, but here Jesus is actually kind of physically providing that. Um, the, the comment that's made by the, the master of the, the ceremonies, the, the person that's kind of in charge of organizing this feast, you know, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So what has gone on here, normally the, the best wine would be served first, and when people had had enough, they couldn't really tell the difference between you know, kind of a, a nice Napa cab and two-buck chuck. That's when the two-buck chuck comes out. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's very definitely what he's saying. And so if you ever hear a Baptist say that this is actually grape juice, they're wrong. <laughs> <clears throat> there, there's just no way to make sense of this statement if this is not alcoholic wine. Um, but what, what's happened here is that the best wine has come out at, at the end. 
And that's what God has done for us. You know, God has provided abundantly for his people in the Old Testament. But God has provided even more abundantly uh, with, with Jesus Christ. And we're enjoying that now. Uh, we'll enjoy it more fully at the second coming. Manifested his glory. So I'm um, going to move on to verse 11. I'm going to read John 17 one. I'm not going to put it up. I don't think. No, I'm not. Um, so th this is uh, the beginning of Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer, I believe. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son uh, that the son might glorify you. And so that we, we see that you know, Christ's uh, what he did on the cross, the, the crucifixion, is kind of the ultimate manifestation of his glory, but he's beginning to manifest his glory here to his disciples. The, <clears throat> we've already looked at this last week uh, when, when Jesus kind of talked about how his disciples would see his glory, but we noted that in John, the transfiguration isn't there. So J John is not pointing to kind of visibly seeing his glory. They're pointing to how Jesus is demonstrating his glory uh, through, through what he's done in his ministry. And so I think that's what uh, John is getting back here. I do want to kind of step back and, and look at some things a little bit more broadly. Uh, I want to go back to Mary's request and that kind of surprising rebuke. And I want to look at, at this just a little bit more symbolically. Um, the bridegroom had failed at his task of adequately supplying for the wedding. Symbolically, Mary is unintentionally asking Jesus, who's the true bridegroom, to step in and supply the wine. Uh, you know, Jesus is the true bridegroom. Uh, he, he's kind of the reality that, our, that marriage points to. Um, and Jesus will supply, kind of symbolically, the, the true wine for the most important wedding celebration through his atonement on that cross. And the hour for that has not yet come. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at in his rebuke. You know, why do you ask me to do this now? My hour has not yet come. But I, I wanted to kind of look at the, the, the flow of the narrative before we kind of tried to tackle that one. The, the last thing that I would like to point out in this account is that John doesn't use a word close to miracle. In fact, we, Greek doesn't even have a word particularly close to miracle. Um, but he uses a different word. The, the Gospels refer to um, you know, Jesus' miracles with something to the effect of acts of power. John doesn't do that. He calls them signs. And I want to step back and just sort of think about what a sign is. So let's imagine that you know, we've got a, a three-day weekend and we decide to uh, go see something. And so I get the kids in the car, and we drive to the Grand Canyon. It's probably a five-hour drive from here to get to the South Rim. And we you know, approach that. We see the sign uh, for the Grand, that says you know, Grand Canyon Entrance. Um, and I haven't been there in a while. I imagine it's got a, a fairly decent sign. So we kind of pull over to the side of the road. We get uh, the family out. We take a picture in front of the sign. And then we turn around, and we drive back. <laughs> We've missed the point. <laughs> um, the sign... Uh, to the park of the Grand Canyon is not particularly important. It's, I, I don't know what it looks like. I didn't bother to look it up. Uh, it isn't, I'm not saying it would be wrong to, to get out and see it, but it's not significant. The reality that it points to is significant. And in John, 
the miracles themselves are a lot less important than the reality that it points to. And it isn't that you know, these are not supernatural acts and the fact that you know, Jesus is able to perform a miracle tells us uh, something you know, about his power. But what, what it tells, uh, uh, tells us kind of symbolically is even more important. And so that's why John refers to these as signs. One of the things that's unique about the Gospel of John is that there's fewer miracles recorded in John than there are in the other uh, Gospels. The other Gospels, you know, their miracles will kind of happen in, in rapid succession in many cases. John always will have a, uh, a sign, and then he'll unpack the theology of it. You know, and th- th- uh, That's what he's really interested in. And so I wanted to kind of... Uh, draw your attention to the word sign as we'll be seeing it through, through the gospel. In fact, what we're going to be looking at in this study is the first half of the gospel of John, and uh, commentators will frequently call that the book of signs because there are seven signs recorded in that. And then the book changes gears very much, and it covers primarily uh, you know, the upper room discourse, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, prayer, the Garden of Gethsemane, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Um, which we'll, we'll hopefully come back to in a few years, Lord willing. Uh, before I move on to the cleansing of the temple, any questions about this? Yeah. I just always thought it was significant as a pastor that I always come and see that again and again through God. Then he crosses, he's running a kid running through the seminary and running out of the very much true. <clears throat> I find it And in fact, in this next section that we're going to look at, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus has asked for a sign and he doesn't perform one. Um, and he, he knows that it wouldn't do any good. Um, you know, miracles, in fact, looking in the Gospels, often do more harm than good. People get excited about the miracle, but not the reality that it points to, uh, which is exactly what would have happened if he had performed a sign. It wouldn't have changed any of the hearts, but it, it would have distracted... In, not uh, shown what Jesus was trying to, to teach. So the, the, what, the reality that miracles are, point to is incredibly important. Yes? Um, I, I guess I kind of envisioned it, but it's you know, like that third day. Mm-hmm. Would that be the third day from the baptism? Or... It, it's the third day from the previous incident. So there was, presumably there's a few days to travel from where Jesus was. So what... Uh, this would be more than the third day after his baptism, because Jesus would have been baptized relatively early in this kind of succession of events. I don't remember exactly how it works. It would have been probably the first or the second day. Um, and then there were several days where you know, Jesus was calling several disciples and spending time with uh, Philip and Nathaniel and Bartholomew and Peter. Um, it's difficult to say. If, if you try to construct a, a chronology of the 
Gospels, it's difficult to fit John into this. And in fact, the calling of the disciples that we see in John 1 is very difficult to reconcile with the calling that we see in the Synoptic Gospels. And so that one theory is that there are actually two different callings where they followed Jesus for a, a period and then Jesus kind of more decisively called them in a different incident as it appears to be in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, which might explain why they kind of dropped everything and followed him immediately because they were already to an extent familiar with him. And there's, there's other ways of reconciling it too. Anyway, all that to say that I don't know that all the disciples necessarily would have been there. Um, there, there's differences of opinion on that one too. Uh, we'll, we'll actually talk about that with the cleansing of the temple. I don't think it's necessary to say that John jumps around uh, with his timeline, and I, I think it's simpler not to. Uh, on the other hand, I uh, wouldn't lose respect for someone that would feel differently on that one. He's not writing chronological history. That's not what the uh, gospel no. genre is. It's a theological uh, work. Mm -hmm. And so they're not tied to chronology. Well, I don't know if you've done that. Yeah. So we, we really don't know, but it doesn't matter. I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> oh. Oops, I'm going backwards. Let's try going forwards. <clears throat> so I, I don't think we're going to quite finish the cleansing of the temple, but I'd like to at least kind of lay the groundwork. We'll finish it, and we'll be able to uh, get to Nicodemus next time. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the, coin of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples re remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you do, uh, what sign, uh, uh, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Um, I will you know, mention that an incident very, very similar to this comes up in the Synoptic Gospels in the Passion Week, the, the last week right before Jesus' crucifixion. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, we just covered Jesus' very first miracle at, at Cana. So this would probably be three years earlier. Uh, and there's different possibilities. As Tim mentioned, uh, and I 100% agree with this, John's goal is not to give us a chronological biography of Jesus. John's goal is to teach us uh, theologically. And so I don't think it's out of bounds to say that John is intentionally uh, moving this incident to a different time in his gospel to show us something. And in fact, I think it's healthy to at least acknowledge that John knows that we know when um, the cleansing is alluded to in the Gospels, and he, I think he wants to kind of catch us, uh, make us think 
by maybe referring to a similar incident that happened three years earlier, perhaps moving the incident chronologically, I don't think it's too important. I would lean towards there being two cleansings of the, of the temple. It's perfectly reasonable that after a few years, the riffraff would have come back and the temple would have been just as crowded with money changers if Jesus had cleansed it once and cleansed it again. And it would be very reasonable for Jesus to, to cleanse it twice. Well, so when you ask what the predominant view was, it kind of depends on who you would ask. Uh, if you were to ask dispensationalists, you know, people that you know, hold to a very, very literal interpretation of the scriptures, the 100% view would be that there would be two cleansings of the temple. If you were to ask at a conservative Reformed seminary, I'd say it might be more like 50-50. How does that sound, Tim? <laughs> Something like that. Um, and if you were to ask in a liberal seminary where the, they are kind of look, looking primarily at sources and how this was all assembled, the 100% view would be that John has taken this incident and moved it. So, <clears throat> and I, I don't think it's that important. Uh, it really doesn't change the way that we read it and what, what we get out of it. So. It, it, it's a question that's kind of worth discussing and thinking about. I don't think it's uh, uh, particularly important. I, I'd like to next kind of show you uh, a figure of the, the temple in Jerusalem. This would be Herod's temple. <clears throat> so uh, the, this outside area here is all the court of the Gentiles. And so any, anyone can kind of go into this area. Then you have some kind of buildings. This would be the court of the women. This would be the court of the men right here. This would be the temple itself, and the holies of, holy of holies would be within that. It's pretty easy to guess where the sheep and the oxen and the pigeons and the money changers and all the riffraff would be. It would be in the court of the Gentiles, which is the only place that a Gentile could go and, and worship. And so the, the cacophony from this would prevent Gentiles from worshiping. And so you can see why Jesus is so offended that the temple would be desecrated in a way that would keep Gentiles from coming to God uh, and, and being able to worship. Uh, I think it's kind of helpful to, to, to at least have that in mind. Um, why are there money changers? Why are there uh, people selling animals for sacrifice? Well, the, the reason is relatively obvious. Many people would come, especially in, in the Passover, to Jerusalem, and if you're traveling four or five days, you don't want to be leading a, 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 a steer or a lamb or something like that with you that, that entire time. It would be inconvenient to haul a, a bunch of hay and, and stuff for this. It would make a lot more sense to, to buy an animal to sacrifice in Jerusalem. And so there, there really was a need. Or if you lived in Jerusalem, you probably wouldn't have easy access to that anyway. So you would need to buy an animal to be able to, to, to offer a sacrifice. So there, there really is a need for people you know, ob observing worship in the temple to, to be able to buy sheep. And so I don't think it's a problem specifically that you know, sheep and you know, lambs and um, pigeons were made available for sale. Another issue that wouldn't be as obvious is that the Jewish interpretation of the second commandment about not having any graven images uh, meant 
that there was kind of a prohibition on images at all. What was on Roman currency? The currency that would kind of be used in exchange. You'd have the image of Caesar. So that would be considered unclean. It couldn't be used in the temple. You couldn't uh, give kind of the regular currency there. And so if you wanted to uh, make an offering in the temple, you needed to have special currency that did not have uh, uh, icons on it or symbols on it. So money changers would be there so you could kind of convert your regular currency that you would use to buy and sell into temple currency. <clears throat> and I don't see any problem with these you know, with, with the existence of these businesses, uh, they, they were necessary. And I would imagine that if, uh, the, you know, the, the temple at one point had functioned as it should, where there, there wasn't this stuff inside the temple, it was outside of it, be pretty easy for a, you know, enterprising priest to recognize, you know, we've got some extra space in this area, it's just for the Gentiles anyway, why not rent this out? Uh, charge the, the seller a little bit of money uh, to come here. In fact, we could even kind of do what airports do and control the prices, so you have to pay three fifty for a cup of soda, um, whereas it should cost less than $2 anyplace else, and we could charge a little bit more rent if we do that. And so that's probably what was going on. Um, I, I'm fairly, I, I think I'm on reasonably good ground when I, I, I say that the um, the temple system was probably, and the priests were probably profiting from selling space, or renting space to, to these merchants. And I think it's a good guess, at least, that they were probably setting prices in that area, letting the, the, the prices go higher than they would otherwise, uh, because they, they had kind of a captive audience there. And they could charge more rent if, if they did that, just like, uh, these con artist airport businesses that drive me crazy. Um, <laughs> so, so the, the real principle is not specifically buying and selling, but it's disruption of worship. I don't think it would be wrong in our building for you know, someone to sell you know, good quality reformed books. Uh, we, we do this now um, at, at cost. Uh, it's a good way of, of, of you know, making good quality uh, books available to us. As Presbyterians, we, we appreciate good quality, uh, well-written theological uh, literature. Um, and I, I think as long as it, it can be done in a way that's not disruptive to worship, I, I certainly don't see a problem with you know, uh, financial transactions happening. Uh, although it, it certainly can become a focus, and if it be, you know, gets to the point that the, the church is being disrupted or uh, kind of a profit motive becomes central to that, then, then it, it certainly would kind of move into the area of what, what's going on here. But uh, disruption of worship, I think, is the, the real uh, issue that's going on. <clears throat> so the, <clears throat> the religious leaders uh, question... Jesus, they uh, say, by what authority do you do this? And then they ask for a miraculous sign to, to demonstrate that authority. And that, that request kind of gets lumped together. This may well have been a longer exchange, and John is kind of condensing things. Um, <clears throat> were they reasonable to ask this? And I'll, I'll kind of finish up with this, and then we're going to get back to, to this next week. And I'm going to answer yes and no. 
Let me give an example. This is the best one that I can come up with. It's rather improbable, as you'll see. But let's imagine that in church, one of the songs that we start singing has some deep theological problems. And I strongly object to it. Now, we should not sing uh, worship songs that have substantial theological problems. But let's say that out of right motivation, I jump up and say, stop singing this. And I rip bulletins out of people's hands and I unplug the instruments and so forth to, to uh, prevent this from being sung. My motivations may well be proper, but there is something wrong with what I'm doing. What am I doing wrong? I'm disrupting worship and I don't have the authority to disrupt worship. Um, if I were an elder, <laughs> um, I might. <laughs> but you know, what I should do is I should uh, write to an elder, carefully explain the, the problem that I have with that, but not disrupt worship, right? because I don't have the authority to do that. I don't have the authority to make that determination. And so uh, that's why I would answer yes and no. That's why I would answer the yes, that the, 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 the Pharisees do have the right to say, wait a minute, who gives you the authority to tell us how do the temple functions? Well, Jesus does have the authority. Jesus had been teaching in Jerusalem. If When we get to the next uh, section of chapter 2, we'll actually see that Jesus performed signs. The religious leaders would have been familiar with him. They would have had an opportunity to see who he is, and they should have recognized who he is and recognized that he really does have the authority to do this. Also, the religious leaders should have recognized that what he what was going on in the temple was grossly inappropriate and that they were perfectly aware of it for years. They were probably condoning and profiting from it instead of uh, purifying it as they should have been. They were not doing their responsibility as leaders. Jesus was pointing that out. They should have seen that. They should have repented, and they didn't. So uh, that's where we'll stop today. Um, next time, we're going to look at uh, why Jesus doesn't provide a sign, and we're going to get on to Nicodemus. Uh, so any really quick last-minute questions? Okay, I will see you next week.